How are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 12 of the Simple Life podcast. I am joined, as always, by Mr. Maka. How are you doing, brother? For those watching at home, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> I wasn't picking my nose, I swear. I wasn't. I was just scratching. It might look like I was, but I definitely wasn't. You know you'll, it You'll was. have to you take know. my word on that. But I am doing well. I hope, you, I hope you all are doing as well as I am with my finger up my nose tonight. Wonderful. Wherever you have your fingers this evening, folks, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, episode 12 sees us being joined by two wonderful guests. We are joined by Gav Lawson and Ashwin Kaboko Bola. Sorry oh, about the... Bola, Kaboko's... Uh, that's just my Facebook name. I should oh. really change that. People can... You, sh- you should, because <laughs> when I went to research, I was like, that is a cool-ass name. Like, no, yeah, well, it's my it's my capoeira name, but it's just Ashwin. Ash to my mates. Schwin Bada to whomever. Well, it's a capoeira name. Are we allowed to throw Yes. Yes, feel free. you like... Anyway, these two wonderful gentlemen that you may very well know as Gavin Ash are from TFC, the hemp trading company. Um, I've been wanting and waiting to get these two on here for quite a while now. Uh, they are two of the people that I first met when I moved in towards activism and sort of club work uh, many a moon ago now. And the two people that have had my back for a long time and a company that I very much respect for their ethics and for their their outlook and the way they handle things. So without further ado, I will throw you over to Mr. Gav Lawson to uh, give you a bit more of an introduction onto the company. Hey, cool. So first of all, thank you for this opportunity, uh, Simpa. And uh, we very much appreciate and love your, your work as well. And uh, it's good to see you're rocking a, a proper t-shirt as well. So good work, man. So um, THTC, so... Essentially, I started THC with my brother um, and Dan Sodegren, who's a friend who runs a company called Great Marketing Works now. So they were at university in Hull together uh, 25 years ago. So um, about 24 years ago, they started a society called Hempology, which was essentially um, a concept to a concept for a bunch of people that like getting stoned in Hull to hang out and get stoned in Hull uh, whilst talking about um, hemp products. So essentially what they did, which is kind of what we carried on with THTC, is running alongside existing club nights in in Hull uh, in a couple of the the local student nights, um, for which they would um, essentially have a table, hand out a load of flyers and and have a load of samples from hemp plastics to textiles, cosmetics, all sorts of stuff. I mean, there was, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to do in Hull 25 years ago anyway. So uh, it did, it very quickly became the second most um, popular society in the university after football within a few weeks. So they did really, you know, they were onto something, struck a chord. Um, I got to get stoned and, and talk about environmentalism. And my brother was actually studying uh, politics um, and environmental politics at uni. So he then wrote his dissertation on hemp. So that's how I, how it was first brought to me. Um, he and a few of his mates then went off to start a company called THC, the Hemp Collective, which was essentially cosmetics. Um, so when that failed pretty badly, because um, they didn't really know what they were doing after a year or so, I was studying advertising it um, in Bristol at UWE. And I came in and, and we decided to start up THTC. Now, 
we really just wanted to start a hemp company. So we're not from a fashion background or anything like that. And we just thought, what's the best and easiest way, or we thought would be the easiest way, to get into getting hemp to the high street, which was our goal. And we decided on clothing. So from that clothing, we then started with a full range, which was, I know that I'm going to kind of merge into the next question, because you were saying this next question is where do we get our raw materials? So we started that in Romania because we wanted something close to home. There was not a lot of options at the time for hemp textiles at all. Um, Romania, China, and Nepal were the, the three places that we could um, that we could really source from. So we started in Nepal. Uh, sorry, we started in Romania. Um, went out there and had a look around some of the factories, and the fabrics were very much as people. Uh, still, a lot of people still think of hemp fabrics as, you know, really rough, coarse. Uh, we used to call it camel's pubic hair because that's pretty much what it felt like. But the fabrics were very much sackcloth back then. Yeah. But that's where we started. Um, we then moved the range, the production to Nepal. Uh, but very quickly it became obvious that China were so far ahead of the game in terms of their textiles, their fabrics in hemp, and, and their understanding of how to actually use it. That we switched our production to uh, to China uh, and have been there using a Chinese hemp ever ever since. So mm -hmm. twenty one years now. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Well, that, that was uh, yeah, very uh, concise and um, well well answered. This one of the things that I suppose as a company that's always really I've respected about you guys is that you upcycle old season garments. You try to always use your own. It's a carbon, uh, is it carbon neutral, carbon negative, organic cotton. Uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously the uh, uh, hemp as well. So I think that you really live by the philosophy of the company, which is something too few you, you see. You see flashy marketing gimmicks and then you see a cheap product. Whereas you very much built a, a company and an ethos around this. So, sorry, rather built a company around this ethos. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what we tried to do. I mean, as I mentioned, I, I was studying advertising at, at UE. Um, I wanted a way to use my skills or use you know, the knowledge that I'd, I'd gained doing that. But, you know, when you look at advertising, when I looked at advertising, I, what I what is obvious to me is that a lot of products, a lot of the issues with the world are based on advertising and marketing and taking a product that is, or product or an industry that is essentially demerit. It's not good for us or not good for the planet. And using clever advertising to to sell it to people, you know, uh, Coca-Cola being, I mean, you can edit that out, but Coca-Cola, McDonald's being prime examples, you know, of products that are really bad for you, bad for the planet. But everyone thinks, you know, kids recognize Ronald McDonald before they recognize, you know, or Santa Claus before they recognize anything else, essentially. So wanted to kind of use some of uh, some of advertising, what the tools in the advertising box to um, to help to sell beneficial you know properly sustainable products so you know for me i um you know i, I don't want to i don't want to use techniques to sell shit to people and so we always started with the product had to be <clears throat> as sustainable and as eco as it possibly could for us to believe in it so yeah we've tried to stick to that as as as, as rigidly as we can and Excellent. like uh i can i can hear some people sort of grumbling at a few a few bits and pieces in there but i mean for me it's like using advertising and marketing which do you know what i mean all of the tropes that as you rightly say have been used in such a negative way in a positive way i have no fucking problem with that in the slightest and i can't really see how anybody would do you know what i mean it's, that's called playing the fucking game 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's just being clever about it. That it, those tools exist. You know what I mean? The 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 end application is what gives it the sort of the morality, I guess, or the the good or bad part of it. I, I suppose. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Well, but no, that's fine. But I mean, if you look at where hemp was a hundred years ago, eighty years ago, then it was a, a arguably a PR propaganda. Well, it was a PR marketing campaign that essentially rubbished. Um, the 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 plant and and all of its byproducts so you know it was really marketing and newspapers that were responsible for for this propaganda you know so mm. there's still a lot of people today who still don't know any more about hemp now than they did 20 years ago um mm. you know which is a failing on all of our all of our parts i think but you know the, the media has a lot to answer for mm. yeah I mean- no, I mean, I've got to, I'm sorry, just to uh, jump back in after I was unceremoniously dumped off the internet by my dodgy uh, Wi-Fi reader. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, completely missed the first start of that um, question, but I imagine that we're talking about uh, the prohibition of hemp, why hemp isn't in the place that it should be. Is that is, is that where we're at? Yeah, that's, that's what we're, we're touching at. on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like there's, again, so we can look at this and trace this straight back to you know its roots in in prohibition and what prohibition was meant to do like looking at it just simply as a way in in terms of uh the you know the the oil barons the timber barons and the paper barons were looking to monopolize their hold on capital that's that's one way of looking at it but also the entire kind of the, the very notion of hemp i mean you guys know hemp is one of the most uh um aggressive kind of uh crops out there meaning that it can grow anywhere with in under any circumstances to grow profit to grow a profitable uh you know batch of hemp enough to say supply you know sales ropes all that kind of thing you don't need that much of a land now we've got to also think about the time that uh you know prohibition started we're not like uh more than uh you know 20 30 years from the end of slavery we've got a lot of black people and some of those black people fought for uh the uh the northern armies and they've got and they've got money and they've got a little bit of land i mean one of the the whole kind of things about the um uh uh, the problem the promises that lincoln uh passed on to uh the black people of america was that they would get, I think it was uh, something like four horses, four horses and four acres or something like that, or is one one horse and one acre, something like that. Now imagine a, uh, a newly freed people who are able to take advantage of their own lives through growing hemp, through producing fiber, through creating their own economy. That was a bigger, bigger, that was a bigger threat to them than for example, um, uh you know the 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 dominance of their particular industries because you couldn't really control that industry the cotton gin needed labor like all of those kind of things you know you were looking at like if black people had their own kind of land if they had their own economy they wouldn't be going to work in the fields they wouldn't be going to work on the gins Mm. they wouldn't be going to work in all of these different kind of areas that we now see them the essential services frontline services i mean that's essentially prohibition hemp it's all so connected and we have to and i think this is what this is it's a really kind of important thing to to note that um 
yeah, I think he's, yeah. Sorry, I think that's sorry. I'm, sorry, I'm just dribbling out there because no, no, I no, think it was good. Big of a hit on my. Uh... No, but it is, it is it is a good point that raises that obviously. <clears throat> I think, unfortunately, the line of prohibition is separated dependent on, uh, I suppose, ultimately, in some ways, the color of your skin. If you are of sort of white um, white descendants, then you will typically go towards the, the greed side of the argument. Whereas then if you are a, a minority or someone who has been a victim of oppression, you, you will more see the racism and see the, the, frankly, as I would say, fascism that was behind prohibition, the idea to control uh, people's consciousness. And as you said, to deny a newly freed people an opportunity towards self self sufficiency because the prohibition mm. of hemp is far beyond uh, started a lot earlier sorry than cannabis so that started in the the mid 1800s was when it was first started restricted in various territories around the world using a more yeah before even use uh, sorry starting to use the moralizing argument but it wasn't around sort of what we would consider modern uh, reefer madness it then played more into that idea you spoke of of self-sufficiency that that was the ultimate threat is that if people can literally take a crop and grow from it food clothing shelter and then a cash crop at the end of it as well on on desolate lands ultimately because cannabis then refertilize uh, re-nutrify sorry the topsoils of where it's grown so if they were then met with what should have been the the, uh, the reparations and given that land, very quickly they could use this crop to turn that into very quality arable land and and yeah become pro profitable and prosperous. And I think that was dangerous to the overarching racist inclinations of the people at the time. I have to admit I had never thought about it like that. So I've literally just proven what you've just said to be, to be completely true. But I mean that that's absolutely fascinating. I can't help but think about think about that. It's... Well, and that first propaganda was obviously spread through newspapers, which were owned by William mm. Randolph Hearst, who controlled all the timber, obviously controlled all the timber. So, yeah, it's, yeah, well, it absolutely I mean, is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you are, I mean, this is the thing, if you don't have any people who are dirt poor, if you don't have anybody that is, uh, like, kind of struggling to survive, who are you going to get to man the... Uh, production line at your you know automobile facility that doesn't pay minimum wage mm. before a time of minimum wage this is part and part i mean this 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 whole notion of um of self-determinism of this relationship of employer to employee i mean that's i mean it's it, it's part and parcel of this whole thing it's it, you know developing on from what you said simply yeah, it's it's almost like a war on individual autonomy is what we've seen for the past yeah. few hundred years and i think what we're now seeing um in the 21st century is is cannabis and hemp however you want to define the difference between them at this point um being that that tool that can empower us again um i mean one of the questions i did want to talk to you guys about was about domestic production of hemp can you see a day when we will grow hemp in the uk because i mean post-Brexit, we're kind of screwed as a little island nation if we're not got no treaties and the EU are literally now taking bacon sandwiches off uh, tourists well, travelling in in, Den in, a, in Holland. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've been hoping for over two two decades since we started THDC and expecting the domestic hemp market to have, to have grown and, you know, to have blown up by now. But I mean, obviously it's very related, the hemp industry is very related to cannabis law as well. And as cannabis law is loosening around the world, you you know you'll see, obviously in the U.S. predominantly, but you know Portugal as well, even Jamaica and 
you know, even Thailand, it seems now, you know, as, as laws are, are loosening up, then, then, you know, if you've got a license to grow, to grow any kind of cannabis, then you can grow, you can grow hemp. So, I mean, it is very much intrinsically linked with law reform, I think. But I mean, also, you know, we, we are after Brexit, we're going to be struggling for our, for our own exports and our own industry. Definitely. So, I mean, I think this is, the, if there's anything positive that's going to come out of Brexit for us, it's, it's going to be, I'm not going to say taking back control because it's just such a loaded, but it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> too, I said yeah. it now. But it is literally, you know, being able to control our hemp industry and and mm-hmm. and, and really bring it bring it on. So I mean that is a definite potential positive. Um but yeah, as I said, it's been twenty years and there's nothing has changed in terms of textile mm-hmm. production in this country, really. There's some hemp being grown by hemp and a few other hemp farms for some plastics and some food, but it's nowhere near, you know, they need they need to really uh, create industry through the textiles um, in, in any anywhere outside of China really has to happen. Yeah. Wait, if so I'm the... sorry, I was sorry. just going to say, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that China currently owns half of the world's patents on cannabis-derived technologies. That um, sounds about right. Yeah. So yeah, they are very much ahead of the game. So what were we going to say, Ash? Yeah. Well, it again, it can't, it's funny. Like China comes into the um, the conversation because. They're a country that have put a lot of public funding, public sector funding, into developing uh, um, hemp agriculture, hemp processing, and actually make it like subsidizing that market. So in this country, we're subsidizing fossil fuels. We're subsidizing fracking. We're subsidizing the dairy industry. We're subsidizing all of these uh, um kind of sectors of the economy that are failing because they're not environmentally or socially sustainable. The One of the the biggest problems, I think, in this country, and I, um, it, was, it definitely was when we were in the, um, uh, the, uh, the British Hemp Association, was the, the lack of access uh, to, uh, to processing and also the, the, the barrier to entry for uh, for hemp processing now, uh, Paddy from uh, Hempen, I've forgotten his surname now, but I remember one of our meetings. He was talking about the uh, the economy of hemp, um, and we were talking about. Uh, I remember in one of our meetings they were talking about the value per square uh, per square meter per square hectare <clears throat> of uh, hemp. And when you look at the hemp fiber um, in and of itself. Uh, I think it's uh, similar. When you just look at the fibre, the uh, the value is equatable to wheat, I believe. So when you're asking a, a British farmer to replace his uh, crop for something else, like and he has to get you know new seed, all that, there's an overlay on that. When you add CBD and flour onto that, that's the missing piece. But again, like you have, uh, you've got the regulatory kind of blocks there. What what we need right now is actual political will. I think that in the next couple of, in the next few years, cannabis is going, cannabis, let, let's get let's get this right. Cannabis and hemp is legal to grow if you have enough money. Yeah. And if you have enough land. If you are rich enough, you can do anything in this country. You can get a license for Frankly, it. We yeah. have a license to grow cocaine if you wanted to, if you had the money. It that's was, how yeah. that is that is how this that is how this system that's how this system works and i very much see like if we continue down this road of having you know 
a uh, conservative or a neoliberal government, any kind of government that essentially thinks the free market will solve everything, you're just going to get a, a, a growing a, a growth of these uh, the dominance of say British sugar growing cannabis, yeah. GW Pharma growing cannabis, Tilray. Mm. You're just going to get mega corporations. It's going to be Cyberpunk 2077 uh, with more bugs and English. <laughs> it's yeah. just a terrible, terrible proposition all the way around. So, yeah. Um, um, so yeah, like it's. I do see it's it's definitely going to like cannabis legalization is going to happen. Who it's going to profit? That's the question. Yeah, that's the question now. Right now, it's do we want it to uh, be able to profit communities or do we want it to profit, uh, you know, the people who are already rich? And I think that's a question we have to uh, we have to answer together and through direct action. I completely, completely agree um, on a few points that you raised there. I think, yeah, so obviously there is a difference in the UK between a cannabis license and a hemp license. Yeah. So we now know uh, what was announced two days ago. The second ever cannabis cultivations license has just been granted in the UK to a company called Northern Leaf, uh, who are based in Jersey. They have, in the statements that were put out in the FT and other such um, correspondence, they refused to say who their um, parent company was, who has basically helped establish them. The only information that was made public was that they helped uh, gain some capital from Chris, a company called Crystal Capital. Um, but they're very, very quiet and secretive about this, so they've done that. On the other side of it, there's 50 plus hemp licenses, but the vast majority of those are for uh, research purposes, typically universities and whatnot. And at this point, frankly, what the fuck research do we need to do on on hemp because what they're getting them to do is provide studies that show a lack of efficacy to prop up the government's position on cannabis we already have known this for a long time that um as david one of david nutt's anecdotes suggested that when he sat down with one of the leading peers at the time uh, a sitting uh, mp said that we need to um have evidence-based drug policy and the mp replied to him yes but first we must decide what the evidence is and it very much fits. Like that's what the establishment is doing on this side of it. The majority of it is trying to prove cannabis is bad because it's illegal. That's their, their point of view. On the other side of it, there are a handful of individuals sitting currently in, in chambers that are directly benefiting from this. So obviously we know about the Victoria Atkins connection and we know about to, Theresa May's husband. Mm -hmm. But then there are, there are also people like Jacob Rees-Mogg who through his investment companies are making money on this. There are then people that are set to profit um, from a rollout of an international model. So exactly as you say, it's going to be Tilray, it's going to be Aurora, it's going to be Ethereum and all of these other various companies that are going to be given the, um, the opportunity to have first dibs when ultimately it's the individuals who have propped up this industry through prohibition that should be given first dibs to it. Um, really? which, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing, but you, you've, you've identified it there. The, the, the issue here in terms of equity is political will. It is, yeah. it's, it's always, it it's, is. it's always political will. And part of it, and part of some of that, I think, um, comes in, in the form of how we organize at the moment and what are the organizations who are the you know the political figures or entities that are you know representing our needs and also really what are the causes that we're banding around yeah i mean this is something that was sorry i don't know if we are we going like well off your no, no, we've, we've got, like I said, we've got some sort of structured questions to it, but... Talk about whatever you want. We, we, <laughs> yeah, no, I just didn't want to be, like, kind of talking, like, kind of going off on... Not if you had a, you stop, no. you're grand yeah. you stop. 
Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just well, in, in terms of government sort of <clears throat> intent, though, uh, they read an article yesterday that said <clears throat> they were going to allow British sugar to use uh, a bee killing um, pest, is it pesticide or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're yeah. the only company that's allowed to do it and they're allowed to use yeah. it on sugar beets. Yep. But it'll also get used for their cannabis production as well then, because they obviously produce quite a large, a substantial amount of it, which is directly sold to GW and produced into Epidiolex. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they need, um, yeah, you don't think you need neonicotinoids on that kind of stuff. They've like, there's, Essentially, the amount of sugar that uh, British sugar is making is, you know, that that's a sizable amount of money. They control the majority of the market. Money going into the, you know, going into the coffers, like so. To to put the the neonicotinoid um, like discussion into um, uh, into context, so like the EU banned it a long time ago. Then the UK banned it, like probably about two years ago after a lot of fighting have a one of the main kind of stakeholders in trying to convince the government not to ban neonicotinoid pesticides is the national farmers union the national farmers union of the uk has had for a you know a, a long time a very questionable kind of uh, in my opinion and i'm speaking as a former uh defra civil servant is it a very questionable relationship with uh, environmental sustainability um, in that I remember when I was working there back in, what was it, 2011, um, the NFU was pushing for greater levels of PAP in animal feed. PAP, for those who don't know, is processed animal protein. So they were lo trying to lobby for a higher level of PAP to be fed to uh, cattle, chicken, you know, all that kind of stuff, because it's cheaper. Because it's, you know, there's a lot of this waste animal byproduct around, like from the meat industry. Oh, let's, you know, we can't feed it to humans. Let's slosh it up and, you know, feed it back to the pigs and, you know, fatten them up, et cetera, et cetera. Again, more reasons to be a vegan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, this is, again, like it all, it, it all comes down to money and it all comes down to, who controls that money and who controls that money in the first place. And so when we are, when we are, are looking to, for example, political institutions to throw our lot behind, we should be looking at the, those who are talking about wealth redistribution. We should be looking at those who are yeah, talking about making, taking companies and allowing their workers to have some say in the direction of that company. Definitely. You know, Marx, Marxism, essentially. <laughs> right, Marxism is analysis. Mark, no, right. Mark, basic, basic Marxism. No, I agree with you. Whatever, whatever. Well, that's it. Empowering, the, empowering the workers, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, I'd say it's more towards like the tradition of syndicalism um, or uh, you know democratic socialism. But essentially, the the, the way of kind of getting there is, um, you know, I think one of the you you asked one of the questions on the on our list about you know what what's the what's the model of you know legalization that you'd like? Well, hang on, hang on. Are we going to go? Okay. Are we going to go into that? Saying. We're, we're, we're moving. We're, 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 we're man. <laughs> we're, we will we will loop back shortly. Oh, yeah. This is the flow. Very natural. <laughs> Lucy Goosey. Lucy Goosey. Uh, this yeah, is this right. is this is the problem. We've, um, Actually, you know what? Let's, because uh, I've, I've talked for bloody ages. I think. Let's, all right, all right, all right. No, yeah, 
let's yeah. all right so then we got slightly sidebarred there for all of our listeners and viewers um but as was always going to be the case getting us locked together in one chat so uh one of the, the things i did want to discuss because obviously a lot of people uh will listening to this will be probably smoking cannabis know about it as a drug and know about the culture of it but they won't know they'll know very little about sort of hemp and cannabis as industrial properties and so sort of the benefits of it versus things like nylon or cotton and how it um so how it can the cultivation and preference of hemp over these other substances or other materials could benefit us sure so i mean First thing about hemp is uh, how easy it is to grow with very little water and little to no pesticides compared with cotton. So cotton being probably the most thirsty, well, the most thirsty crop that, that can be grown. Hemp can be grown with 10 to 20% of the water. And as, as Ash alluded to earlier, in pretty much any environment other than Arctic or you know d- desert, it does need some, some water, uh, but it's a weed. So you don't need pesticides; it just grows together, and it just and it gets rid of all the other, you know, all the weeds. So it's very very durable. Um, we I'm wearing this. Hemp, I'm actually wearing twelve pieces of uh, hemp at the moment. Uh, <laughs> wow. Fourteen. The twelve hemp kind of guy. Fourteen. If, if we count if we count them like the government counts PPE, then these, this is two <laughs> items here. So, uh, so yeah, fourteen items of hemp. But this, for instance, is fourteen years old. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very durable. And we have constantly have people coming out to it at festivals saying, "Hey, I bought this T-shirt fifteen years ago." And I'm like, "Cool. Do you want another one?" And like, "No, this one's good." So you know, <laughs> as a company that's supposed to be um, producing more and more, the fashion industry is all about buying buying new products. You know, um, making hemp products is a kind of goes against uh, capitalism really which uh, yeah so so they do it does last a long time it uses a lot less water um when it comes to um when it comes to the byproducts they are obviously plentiful if you're growing cotton there's not really any byproducts if you're growing hemp you know you've got the seed you've got the oil you've got a medicine you've got a food you've got a, a perfectly good engine oil um and a clean clean plastic which you know for me is a is a massive one and in fact in fact if we hadn't got into hemp clothing then we probably would have probably would have started a hemp plastic company because it's it's really really necessary but um in terms of nylon i mean nylon's um, derived from petroleum so it's uh, there's nothing organic about nylon if you're looking for another crop to maybe compare hemp to then it would be you know a, a, a bamboo or a um or a nepple um or there's modal made out of wood, tensile, all these other things which come from would come originally from an organic product, which they then use a synthetic process to actually produce. Nylon just comes from petroleum. You know, so there's nothing good where that comes from. You know, it's um it's it can't be biodegraded, it can't it's not biodegradable, it lasts forever. So nylon is is about as bad a fabric as you could possibly get for the planet, you know. Uh so so hemp is is i mean you know it is the greenest it's it's the third fastest growing crop in the world after bamboo is the fastest growing and then kelp i think a type of seaweed is the second which you can also make clothing from um but yeah i mean it is it's very easy to grow so many so many byproducts and um and yeah it's it's still you know it could be grown anywhere so there are also cheap, cheap ways to produce any of these other sustainable fabrics. You know, I've, I was when I was last in China with my factory, they showed me a hemp viscose, uh, much the same as a, a bamboo viscose. Um, essentially, you're taking a, a natural product, a natural crop, 
like bamboo or hemp, and you're bastardizing it by using loads of chemicals to soften it using a chemical extraction process, which isn't which isn't great, but it starts you know originally from an organic natural product, which nylon doesn't. Um, so yeah, although nylon is extremely cheap to produce, it's very very costly for the planet. Um, to give you an idea, for a cotton t-shirt, one cotton uh, one kilogram of raw cotton requires about ten thousand liters to be grown. Uh, imagine 10,000 litres of fresh water, that's for two to three t-shirts, 10,000 litres. And there are going to be wars being fought over water in the, in a, within our lifetimes, I reckon, unless we do something about it. Oh. Uh, but there are also other, you know, there are sustainable, more sustainable ways to grow cotton now than there were 15, 20 years ago, you know, saving water, saving chemicals. But in terms of land, mass land usage, hemp, you know, is hemp and bamboo are are the ones that you can you know create the most yield from. Um, so so yeah, I mean it's it's hemp all day every day really. Yeah. And and Gavla, what you I think a couple of the things that you said there as well, basically hint to you know the reasons why. Oh, like you know, because again, like THCC is the oldest is uh, to my knowledge one of the oldest and Gav, correct me one of the oldest surviving ethical clothing labels in the uk one of the not the but one of the like 20 mm -hmm. years the business 20, has survived 21 20, years just just because you're not in the office anymore I'll carry on. No, no, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah but i mean this is the thing like so many of these companies operate on such a like this is the thing because the, the the whole kind of idea of like of a business is that you have sustained profit not, not sustainable, but sustained profit every growth. year. Sustained year growth. Year. Yeah, sustained growth. Like you, like, and the the problem is, is that when you are pushing like sustainable products, when you're pushing a product that is going to last like a lifetime, like how many, like you need, you need to keep selling and growing your community. And I mean, that was my job. Like when I was a, uh, you know. CHTC was I headed up their marketing and the whole kind of idea of uh, like attach like kind of educating people about why a, a t-shirt for example should cost say around about 25 pounds and for that 25 pounds you're going to get something that is going to last you and that's going to hold together mm. it's it's quite difficult when they when in your head the method of consumption is that oh I buy a new t-shirt every couple of weeks you're programmed into that because every other product that you've bought falls apart because every because that is the culture of our that's the culture of our society is a culture of a consumerist society you build mm -hmm. something with the uh kind of worst level of uh the lowest quality of products that you can afford to make the most profit that you can mm. right and you pay the least that you can for the labor and you make as much profit from that as possible. Now, where THTC has always been is that, you know, the company has provided, uh, was it living wages above living wages for its staff, uh, pays uh, our partners pay their uh, um, uh, pay their labourers, pay our, our garment workers living wages in their respective countries. So, you know, like when you add all of those things together, like. And you are also kind of saying, okay, this is my value. This is how much I've put in. And when you start to kind of put that back to yourself, you you start to 
you, there's there's no there's no profit in there there's no massive profit there's no like you know we're not you, there's no way to make nike billions or apple billions from from working a fairly uh, equatable business a fairly run business mm. you just don't it, it's just not possible to do that sure and your point is particularly pertinent within fashion because you're told in fashion that last season is last season and you need to get something new for this season with apple or with other products you generally wait for them to wear out although they're pushed on you but in fashion you are you know if you're last season then you're last season you're left behind um yeah. with sustainable and ethical fashion it's a constant dilemma of how much should we be encouraging people to buy you know yeah and should we be encouraging that's why as you said the getting simple one of the one of our proudest things that we've tried to do is encourage people to upcycle and turn old t-shirts into cushion covers or whatever it is and actually take real pride in wearing something for a number of years and that's what i'd like the thtc logo to be associated with something that lasts not something that you throw away or give away Mm-hmm. Yeah, but somebody like just for me on a sort of a personal level, and I've said this to you, uh, Simple, a long time ago before we started this um, podcast. Is like <clears throat> the I have the most T-shirts out of every person I know. No, seriously, right? Because I I have a hard time letting them go, and because they they no they do they mark they mark a. Uh, a point of relatability in my life that you know if it's a positive thing or if somebody you know awesome has given me this t-shirt I'm very reluctant to give that away I'll put it away and I'll you know you know I might wear it um refresh it down the line or whatever but I have like sacks of t-shirts that can you imagine how many I've got yeah I was just about to say that's that's where I was going with this I was like I can't imagine how many both ye have and they're a lot better than this thing look at this it's like God. Uh, I've uh, given myself one of those every color I've ever done, plastic, and they're just though. sat in a lockup somewhere because I can't wear them all. But yeah, yeah. How, how many is that, Gav? Oh God! Well, I'm thinking about starting a an eBay store just for my secondhand t-shirts that I'm never going to get around to wearing. I must have, I must have about 400 of my own t-shirts just from THTC designs that are boxed up and sitting somewhere. And and I'm such a hoarder at the best of times, but when they've got a real value to me, it's even it's even harder. So I think I need to buy the bullet and flog them. They're all medium, so um, if anyone wants any, all the bidding. You are a hell of a hoarder, mate. Where's uh, have you got any of your QPR programs in the back in the background? QPR, <laughs> Dude, like I, I, I mate, there is um, three well, quarters. I'm I'm hoping that one day I'll actually go up a t-shirt size so I can get rid of all that stuff. <laughs> I've got to eat more in the first place. But yeah, there's a lot of hoarding going on. Oh, so this um, it, the way you speak of it, you both allude to a certain kind of painful poetic irony in the being the kind of company that you are and trying to um, push the kind of ethical consumption that you are is very hard because without then profits driving profit seems to drive everything in the neoliberalistic capitalist world so they then look what's profitable that's where we'll invest that's why psychedelics are suddenly going to be the next big thing as cannabis was the next big thing so until we can somehow show that sustainability can be more not profitable in that sense but profitable in a in a non-financial way appreciated yeah and and, and so what 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 is it that the people can do what can 
advocates do other than obviously directly uh, support the company? What can we do to get the the message louder? You know. So here's well, the I mean, thing. Okay, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, because you, you mentioned that. Sorry, man, you mentioned the psychedelics thing, and it, and it's very, very important on that point. The reason that psychedelics are are have a lot of money going into them now is from the U.S. defense sec uh, sector, from the uh, from the U.S. government in treating, and this is specifically, we're specifically treating uh, PTSD in war veterans yeah. with the view of getting them back into action, reducing uh, a trauma in the first instance. So, you know, some, there's, a, there's, an, there's, a, there's an economic need for it, but the most important thing here is that it, that is public funding. That is a public, that is public funding. That is government funding going in, that's an intervention, making, putting money into uh, uh, research, funding research in order to, uh, you know, just essentially funding research, creating an academic market. Sounds very Jacob's Ladder though. Is that, are they also trying to get people onto <laughs> psychedelics and then give them machine guns and just make them more war machines? Is that the story of Jacob's Ladder? Because every That's time the I true watch story, I, just can't, I can't ever like, it's just some, I think it's just some guy dying on a, um, like, no, 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 no. It's, it's based on true story about, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. About, about, go about governments giving people LSD to make them more violent. Well, yeah, no, we, no. We, it's, it's all through disclosure in the 30 year rule in America. We know that obviously MKUltra, um, mm. uh, Operation Midnight Climax, and things like that occurred where I think it was about 23 years the CIA basically openly worked with Sandos to allow anybody with an ology in their profession to have some LSD and go here, figure out what the hell to do with it. Mm. And then once they started to get the academic research back, they started doing some very heinous fucking things. Like I said, Operation Midnight Climax was in, I think it was, it was New York or Philadelphia. And they basically yeah. got a brothel and with uh, two-way mirrors, and they got the the sex workers to go and lure in the Johns, and then drug them with LSD and all sorts. So this has been going on for a very long fucking time. But yeah, as you said, they found a way to specifically weaponize it. So it was, I think, two years ago, that MAPS got a huge bit of money from the American government around MDMA, specifically as you were saying, for treating PTSD. Yeah. We're now sort of seeing, as we saw with the, let's call it the Silicon Valley weaponization of microdosing to it to improve productivity so we took all of this stuff of going here's what we can do to help you you as an individual be better just better better in your day-to-day -day life have a, a better connection to the world and, and a better grip on reality and an understanding of who you are in your position in life that then very quickly got turned into actually if you take this exact amount your productivity will go through this which can improve company productivity this much so you've actually got retreats taking place in san francisco and shit where you've got big tech companies sending their executives to go off and have psychedelic experiences not for their own personal development but for how it will develop them professionally and well, it's, I, I am it's very probably the same probably the same reason that people don't get tested for ketamine or or, or i mean for cocaine here or amphetamines just because a lot of industries would collapse without it you know hell yeah hell yeah very very true yeah like again with like with with all of that we're still we're, we're, we're still in this position where we still need a government intervention we need mm. political will yeah. like my again like it you know you're not going to get boris johnson like uh legalizing cannabis out of the good of his heart but you know i wear you know i wear my guy on my chest i mean like he's the only like one of the one of the key things here, like when we're looking at, for example, like legalization and uh, and decriminalization, is that we need some kind of 
uh, like you know level of public safety. We need some kind of uh, guarantee of quality of product. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that um, and when we look at, uh, for example, the last election cycle, we look at uh, a policy that, for example, there's two, a couple of policies that Corbyn floated. One of them was uh, this state pharmaceutical company. Mm. A state pharmaceutical company operating maybe, possibly, in a similar way that Vietnam's cannabis uh, uh, legalization is going to work, whereby uh, Vietnamese uh, uh, people, Vietnamese uh, rural folk, can grow cannabis and sell it to the government, mm -hmm. to a state pharmacy, to a state vendor, to a state marketplace. The state takes on the responsibility for testing, for quality control, for you know issuing seeds, and the uh, and you know your your farmers your farmers do what they do best is farm. They don't have yeah. to you know go on uh, Instagram and do some like dodgy uh, like you know bloody Instagram story you know, shots or whatever yeah. like they do in America. They don't have to get a blacklist. They don't have to worry about any of that. They just, yeah. you know, get up in the morning, go out and farm, like collect a wage. That's it. That's kind mm -hmm. of, that's, so, I mean, already we see the necessity for like some like state or local authority to be involved. Mm -hmm. Again, like my, my ideas about this are that we have to, we start in our local areas with our local councils. We start there. Yes. We have to start on our local doorstep and we've got to get organized i think yeah. i think yeah one of the things i was saying we like i've not been I've, not, I've i keep dipping in and out of uh the uk organization so i don't really know what the gossip is yet i don't know who's doing <laughs> what or all you know all of that but um it, from my ears things seem to have slowed things seem to seem to have slowed down especially with covid you know everyone's got other priorities on but kind of how is that kind of moved like generally because i'm 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 actually lost at the moment i don't well, know what's happening well typically ultimately i would say it's a consequence of the legalization of medical cannabis in the uk because as, as we saw i mean actually i probably shouldn't tell that anecdote because it'll get us in trouble so i shan't um so when we all met previously um outside of parliament and we sort of rallied for the uh, paul flynn bill and we were pushing with this we were all promised that the recreational community would be represented that if we stand and fight for them they will stand and fight for us as soon as it was announced of what was actually put into place that very much fell away and we saw activists and advocates become patients overnight we've now mm. seen this i'm all right jackism for lack of better phrasing which is that oh i can get my prescription and i can afford it therefore i'm a legitimate legal entity in person and it's disempowering thousands of us so there's something like 2500 private prescriptions being handed out by these clinics in two years obviously none of this is domestically grown product all of it has got a huge carbon footprint we have no idea of what's happening with the ethics and the future of the industry that we're supporting in other nations and what they will do to harm their own cannabis community in their their country in the same way that we've seen what gw have done against us as a cannabis community advocating for for access and for our own right to 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 grow and consume cannabis as we see so there's now a three-pronged approach they've divided us into hemp industrial cannabis over here which has then got a fight around the 0.1 t 0.2 thc argument then you've got medical going this way that because they've got licenses and and exemptions they can do what the fuck they like and they, they're going off fast and they're making serious bank 
then you've got sort of, I suppose, the CBD and legal market, the people who don't want to be these boys and don't want to get bought out and go full corporate, but they recognize the need for uh, cyclical and continuous growth. And then in the middle is just people like, I suppose, myself, who's just, I just want the fucking war over. I just literally want it to be a case where we are all free to do what we want, that nobody is then further persecuted or harmed or imprisoned for what they choose to do in a legal marketplace. So mm. I think there's so much dis, dis, uh, so much lack of discourse and dis, um, disinformation being spread between these communities that mm. that cohesion just isn't there. So it's one of the reasons I started this project was to try to mm. uh, draw a line under just being a community club and a representative for recreational cannabis and to actually say that, look, we all need to come together because we can either fight and get it incremental bit by bit and we'll have what's left once the investment firms have taken their trillions and gone. Or as you said, we can we can create and, and nurture that political will and actually move forward as a unified entity fighting for a true robust hemp industry that means if you grow for CBD flower, you you have to then produce using the, the textile material or you have to then integrate some somewhere with another company that does so. The sh cannabis has the potential for zero waste and for maximum profit. As Trev Coleman says, cannabis is a, social, uh, a capitalist resource with a socialist agenda. The more we proliferate and the more profit that's made, the better the world seems to become. Look at um, some of the northern counties in Colorado. And there's, there's, there's kids there that then got free college. There's kids there that have got free meals. They're never going to worry. Obviously, America's still got its, its structural issues. But the individual counties and regions are trying to figure out how best to create social equity and use that money. Whereas we have the, the opportunity in the UK because we're not broken up in the same way that if we could have that cohesion, we could fight for a one manifesto, a one ideal, a one unified policy that actually protects and empowers all of us to, 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 to get on with this and to make uh, reparations for the past 50 years of lives that have been ruined because of this stupid fucking war. Mate, I absolutely agree with you. One of, one of the things that was, that's really kind of, um, I think something that we need to kind of take note of is the fact that those different groups that you defined <clears throat> of the cannabis movement, all of that still be belongs under a uh, under the group of uh, another part of cannabis that you uh, kind of describe as consumers. Mm -hmm. It's a consumer-based movement, and in and it's <laughs> it sounds funny coming from a guy that you know runs a it, what, runs the, not not even not anymore like that you know that was uh, working on um, marketing for uh, uh, ethical clothing company to say that a consumer-led movement is actually not as powerful as it should be. It's not as politically, uh, it's not as politically compelling. It's not, for example, when we look at um, like the climate change arguments, if you say to someone, oh, you shouldn't eat, you, you know, don't eat meat because it's bad for the uh, environment. Mm. Don't eat meat because it's cruel. Oh, okay. Don't eat meat because you know it's bad for your health. Oh, okay, that's something there. Now the mm. consumer, the there's another part of that when we look at um, the social movements uh, and this, the social movements around cannabis. And one of them, which I think is really important, is the idea of uh, criminal support. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's at this point I want to shout out the court support uh, crew. And yeah. that um, uh, JJ and um, Callie and all of that crew who, uh, you know, they've been pulling and organizing uh, people to go and turn up for um, uh, 
essentially turning up to people's court dates. Mm -hmm. Now, that small act of um, solidarity um, is enough to build um, like real kind of real networks, real networks whereby, you know, we can practice mutual aid. Like just turning mm -hmm. up to somebody's like court date. That's the first thing, you know, helping out with their family, you know. You've got a guy who's, you know, he's on, you know, remand for God knows for, you know, growing a few plants or whatever. What's his, how's his missus going to cope? How's his kid going to cope? You yeah. know, you come in as a, you know, you come in as a community and help this family like look after themselves. Like, cause the thing is, is that you, you have, a, you have families and you have communities that are torn apart by the war on drugs. Those families and those communities, those are the ones that you see kind of, you know, being radicalized into conspiracy theories, being radicalized into reactionary, uh, uh, you know, content. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, it, it's something really important that we have to, uh, that we have to look at. And I think that like our kind of movement in terms of, I'm, I think our movement should be focusing more on, uh, for example, looking like providing solidarity and support to people, like the victims of cannabis crimes. Like mm -hmm. I would love, for example, the next, uh, 420 uh, to, to, for there to be like a real focus on prisoners a real focus on getting like people who just like think cannabis is all about smoking to to write to somebody who's in prison for cannabis for god's sake mm -hmm. you know like those little things of human connection that is where we, that's kind of where we start emotionally and once we start yeah. emotionally and we connect to people's like material kind of needs their material conditions then we can start you know reading a bit of theory then we can start you know Twitter bullying, you know, your local MP, you know, that's where we need, you know, we, we have to start yeah. building our own networks of power. Yeah. And I think that that is, that's exactly right. Cause so many people are just disenfranchised and disempowered by the way the system has gone. And I, th I think that what I said before about people moving on to prescriptions and kind of going, all right, I'll play the medical paradigm and, and go off that way. It, it really, it placates a lot of, a lot of their fears, a lot of their worries in it. In it. Yeah. And I think that just kind of, it just detracts from the movement. So exactly that, if we can have that holistic approach of us all trying to help each other out in the little way we can, because we have far more resources than, than, than we, we imagine. And there are far more of us than any of us could possibly imagine, to be honest with you. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. No, he's I'm here. I'm here. So, sorry. My, it's my, my camera, my camera's a bit bouncy. It's been a bit funny. Um, but this actually leads us on to, I suppose I'll combine two questions into one which was something you alluded to earlier, but we circled back to the original question, which is about le uh, legalization versus decriminalization. I kind of hate the question because I think it's obviously very loaded, but it works very well for a discussion topic. So that being said, what are your thoughts on whether we should legalize, decriminalize cannabis, and then would you apply the same model for other drugs? Well, personally, I think you have to, with decriminalization of all drugs, you have to look at what's been done before and the experiments that have been done before by, well, in the Netherlands, for, for instance, and then more recently in, in Portugal and, and how the Portuguese have, have dealt with a massive heroin addiction problem they had back in the 1980s, where one, I think 1% of Portugal was were addicted to heroin. Um, and then there was actually a doctor in southern Portugal uh, called Alvaro Pereira, who approached this and, and, and tackled it and really got into you know the the cause of the addictions and and essentially treated uh, treated victims as victims as addicts and not as criminals 
and then actually looked into the root cause of how to, you know, handing out free knee, handing out needles, clean needles and, and support and offering support essentially. And, and that was back in the eighties. And I mean, 2001, I think it was 2001 when they actually decriminalized, decriminalized all drugs. And you just have to look at the, you know, what they've done, what they've done there and, and how that's, you know, how, how the, how society has benefited from it. Uh, there's a great article actually, which would be great. It would be good if we could put it in the description, but there's a, Gu a Guardian article that, um, uh, from 2017, uh, which um, literally talks about um, this, this guy, Alvaro Pereira, and, and the impact that uh, the decriminalization of all drugs has had on their society. And they're you know, the most, probably the most progressive government in the world when it comes to law reform. And no one does heroin anymore, you know, yeah. for, for a start. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, in, in Holland, obviously in the Netherlands, was another, another great success story, um, bringing the average age of heroin addicts from 18, 19 up to 45, 50. And then it's, you know, it's, it's had a huge impact as well. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because obviously they're, they're two quite different approaches. So the Netherlands technically, uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Dutch word that has just flashed before my head, basically means uh, a look the other way. So their policy has been to look the other way on soft drugs, whereas, as you say, Portugal in 2001 uh, put it into statute. They made it law. Um, one of the issues that I've always had around the argument of decrim versus legalization has been supply. That still in Portugal now, if you are still a heroin user, there's still not that many. Uh, in fact, I don't even think there's any operational um, injection sites that will give you pure diamorphine, that will give you clean registered heroin. You still have to find it yourself, and that is still then supporting an illicit market. So, in the same way that we've the argument that was made in America about economics for legalizing um, is now being made, for example, in Bolivia. So they've just done a cash calculation that says actually it's costing us 1.2 what is it, 1.6 billion a year to eradicate coca crops. If we paid the market rate for it, it would cost us 1.2 billion and we'd have no crime. So they're seriously looking in, in, into, do it, into doing that. So I think that there is something to be said for, as Ash was alluding to earlier, maybe a nationalized model of this, where if the drugs are then controlled by the government in terms of purity, in terms of then abuse or usage by the citizens, that then has to be titrated socially. That's definitely, most definitely not a criminal. Cool. And, and also in this country, in a, a lot of, you know, not like the states where essentially the prison system is monetized and it's a profit-making machine. So, you know, it costs a lot of money to lock people up in this country. It's, it's in our interest not to do so, you know, and, yeah. and to actually use that money they would spend on prisoners to educate people and provide them with other stuff to do, you know? We've got a lot, there's a lot of things kind of going on here. I mean, the first thing is, okay, ev everybody does drugs at some point. Everybody has everybody has a toot, everybody has a spoon. Everybody has a spoon. Everyone loves spoon. <laughs> Not everybody has a spoon. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm, I'm no, but the, the, the point <laughs> is is that like everybody will try um, you know, drugs at some point in their life. Some people have a very complicated relationship with drugs and in terms of becoming dependent, um, Gav, we need to start using the word dependent, not addict. The drug dependent, not addict. Um, well, it depends. Uh, it depends what what drugs, right? It's dependent. No, 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 no. Addict, addict is not. This is the thing because uh, I will, I will take your word say, from it. As, as, a, as, a, as a drug dependent that you are, I'll take your word from it. Yeah, as a drug dependent that I am. Yeah. <clears throat> that's the thing. Like, why do people stay on drugs? Yeah, you go to the pint. You go to the pub. Everyone goes to the pub for a pint 
But what's the difference between you and the guy that has to be kicked out at the end of the night? For it's you. The same, those are the yeah, It's the same. Those are the, these are the same kind of things, and different drugs have these different effects on on different people. The majority of adults, and this there's a um, there's three studies that I was uh, uh, looking at. Uh, the majority of adult males um, surveyed in, I think, three different uh, studies, one in the Netherlands, two in America, um, had suffered PTSD. That's uh, adult dependent cannabis males had suffered PTSD as a child. The, uh, the rate of sexual abuse as a child, the rate of PTSD of, uh, experienced by a, ch by a child is a great predictor for uh, uh, drug dependence in later in in later age, mm -hmm. I mean, I can talk. I'm I'm more than happy to talk about my own uh, personal kind of struggles with depression. Well, we haven't got that long, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Sorry. See, this is what I had to this that's is what a, I had to work with for four years. That's no, a separate but, podcast, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially. Um, my uh, again, we travel like the, when we're analysing my cannabis use. There is a direct line to uh, um, trauma that I suffered as a child and the inability to self-soothe as an adult, uh, as a, even as, as a teenager. I got bullied relentlessly in school. I was uh, I was just a weird kid. I had a lot of weird stuff like happened to me as a kid. I was you know. Uh, beaten up by by a um, by one of my headmasters when I was in primary school. Like loads of weird weird little things like that. What had you been uh, doing? Hey, what had you uh, been being doing? five years old. <laughs> well, that'll learn you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like it's those little things like that that kind of you know combine over the years. Accumulate. Yeah. Uh, the you know mm -hmm. PTSD that just you know and so that that's the first thing that we have to look at. Like why are people staying on drugs? Why are people so? W will that market that we're looking at is that going to be elastic? If, for example, we increase welfare payments, if we increase, if we ensure that every mm, child yes. has food, if we don't have child poverty, child poverty mm. is one of the most damaging things. Like having like this is a thing. Like we've all had like I when you as a child seeing poverty. As a, as a child seeing like you know your parents struggle as a, as you know seeing your parents be traumatized by, by their living conditions that is self-traumatizing as well you get yeah. rid of that let's see what happens like further down the line when we're looking at portugal again like we have to look at like what welfare measures have been put in place and again like Port portuguese politics is crazy but they they, they are doing a better job yeah, they're not encouraging, uh, you know, an illicit um, underground of, of drugs. Um, but again, like, do you like my my kind of, my whole kind of thing about a fully legalized drug market is that you're kind. It feels like you're waving the white flag to society. The fact that society could be better. That you're saying that, okay, what's happening right now? This is as good as society is going to get. So here's all of you, here's all the things that you need to be able to cope with it. You know. Sure. But also well, clubbing, all, clubbing all drugs together, which is you know what they've always done. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah but that, that's, yeah, that's I mean, if you look at look at um, for instance uh, the argument about gateway drugs. Uh, like for me, cannabis was a gateway gateway drug to tobacco because I was never going to smoke cigarettes. Mm. Same, like, yeah. I, exactly. I, 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 I now yeah. now in my life as a forty three year old guy, 
I still am clucking to go and have a joint now, and that's purely because of the tobacco. And yeah. you know, if it wasn't for tobacco, I could take all I could take cannabis as and when, whatever. But when it comes to five in the evening, I I desperately, desperately, all I can think about is having a joint. And I know a lot of that has to do with the tobacco. Now, if at the time when I've been growing up, there'd been more information about it, and people had vaporizers, and people had you know smoking pure whatever yeah then i wouldn't have that i wouldn't i wouldn't be addicted to the most the worst drug that there is which is yeah. or the you know the worst legal drug there is which is tobacco and you know that's the gateway drug it also when you when you figure out that they've been lying and bullshitting you about about cannabis and then about mushrooms then naturally you know it's, it's human nature to then want to try other things okay i didn't try heroin i didn't try whatever else but if i'd been from a different upbringing then i might well have gone on to it because you realize they're bullshitting you about the, the softer drugs yeah the, i mean with the harder drugs again like the the gateway for the gateway for harder drug, drugs usually comes from you know your access point like if your access point and also your set and setting where you're doing like those drugs and i think the same goes for uh like alcoholism and harder drugs i've got i'm you know We've got a lot of friends in Europe. We've got a lot of friends in Italy. A lot of friends in parts of Italy that, you know, said serious heroin problems. And the majority of those people got onto heroin just simply because they were hanging out with other people who were doing it. And they got given, you know, they got given rap. They got given whatever. But the underlying motivation, motivating factors that kind of push them towards that, you know, domestic violence, family alcoholism, you know zero uh, employment opportunities all of these things right i cannabis can help you cope cannabis can help you cope with all of those things and i again it's something i was thinking about tonight when people you know the old thing that people talk about oh yeah cannabis makes you lazy but doesn't make you no that's what cannabis does is it makes you cope and it makes you resilient and it puts your mind into almost like this psychic shell but it also does different things to different people and different strengths yeah, yeah. to different I mean, people. Yeah, it's yeah. very complex, yeah. but for you, yeah, yeah. But but I'm saying, but I'm in terms of, for example, the uh, uh, the program that's used in anxiety and depression and PTSD. Mm -hmm. It gives you this mental. It helps give you this mental shell, and mm -hmm. it helps you. Uh, but it does it. But this is the thing. Like it also that that shells it's it's a two-way wall because sometimes and this is again something that i've experienced myself and i'm talking completely again from my own experience like trying to move through that shell trying to move out of your circle can sometimes be really scary because you've now developed this this yeah. circle this little moat around yourself like this is my land this is my area i'm safe in here doing this kind of work and stepping mm -hmm. out of that comfort circle can bring on anxiety because you've 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 may have strengthened some i said probably some negative uh behavior however mm -hmm. because you're taking cannabis you cope and it's not a problem and, that, and, and that's very i feel that's very very different yeah. to um it being considered something that makes you lazy it makes you cope and it makes you yeah. cope and and you know we have to and as, 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 sorry, man. As Bill Hicks pointed out, you know, it just makes you realise that it's not worth the fucking effort. Exactly. exactly. It's sorry. I was just going to say because obviously cannabis consumption we know causes metacognition and personal in introspection. So although yes, as you say, it can help uh, unintentionally help form 
and, and strengthen uh, maladaptive behaviors that could be negative in the long run, you, it can also then give you the insight to identify it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And then there is a, a huge thing I see all the time in people who can only get access to one dealer, so they buy the weed that guy sells. So for a month, they're buying the same thing and they end up in a depressive state. And then suddenly the cultivar changes that's in supply and the woof, and they're in a, yeah. a different, different mindset and they don't even clock to what it is that they were consuming. Yeah. They're, they're, they're susceptible to certain terpene, flavonoid and cannabinoid combinations. Mm -hmm. And without that base education, that's true in cannabis, but there's also other mechanisms that we're only just beginning to understand because we're, we're removing the veil of stigma from other substances. Mm -hmm. So obviously, as we spoke earlier about them doing tests with LSD and whatnot, we're now approaching some serious testing with psilocybin, with MDMA. There's even studies cross and co-drug uh, co consumption. So they're taking polydrug use, so it's multiple drugs mm -hmm. uh, and measuring the effects. Obviously with those classic chemical drugs, they're a, they're a bit more, um, what's the word, predictable, I suppose. So yeah. we, can, we can build better procedures. And I agree to a certain extent of what you're saying about waving the white flag of going, well, this is shit. Here's a way to make you personally get through it. I think on the other side of it that, the as the moral as the moralizing and the stigma drops away the the culture is evolving naturally the drugs would become available and then the availability of the drugs the fear of people pacifying themselves or finding the lock that fits their key because of their trauma it doesn't then become a negative life of dependency it could mm -hmm. then become uh, an amplifier in the same way that we look at a vitamin if you've got a vitamin deficiency if we tr once we truly get to these things i mean i've known and most people listening to this will know functional dependent people of all substances that mm. you look at it and go jesus christ you have four bags of heroin a day and look at you you clean every day you've still got a job you're still this you still you know what i mean and then we obviously know on the other side of the spectrum true uh, too the difference there is usually the stigma that they face is usually they get pushed further and down into that system and it's the air idea of you got to hit rock bottom before we can help you when actually if, yeah. we, if we could if we could meet people where the fuck they are and if we had this mm. in, individualized therapy so basically if you went yes. i'm dependent on my substance you went to your gp they went right let's look at your life what's going on what traumas you faced build a plan around you don't push for sobriety give you access to the cleanest of your substance and if we built communities the same way that we have now with the medical cannabis community that are building of say people with fibro talking to each other about different cultivars preparations mm. we have the same in these other communities and the very nature of that community is the connection that most people who are dependent on substances are seeking that connection to that drug gives them this sense of self or a sense of belonging in the universe. It's a little voice whispering in their ear that it's okay. Whereas we could then change that drug if they chose to, and they were brave enough to and, and wanted to with a community of people that would accept them for who they are and not go, you were on the streets of five years injecting drugs. You stole from grannies, you blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? People who would just go, I see you, my fellow man, you pained human. Do you know what I mean? If we could have that across the communities, not just, just uh, heroin for heroin users. You know what I mean? If we could actually have the cannabis community stop saying smackheads and crackheads and talking derisively about other can other drug consumers mm -hmm. while then still fighting and going, well, you shouldn't talk that way about cannabis. It's just a plant. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the language is extremely important, you know, and particularly, I mean, in this article I mentioned about Portugal, the first thing they, uh, the first thing that they uh, were seeking to change was the language and how people actually refer to and talk about junkies or whatever it is, and as opposed to drug addicts or people, they changed it to people that use drugs, you know, so it's, you know, it goes very much 
right back to the language and the, and the basics around that. You know, it's, it's really how we, our attitudes towards it, you know. Yeah. We, we, have, we have a see i'm convinced on a slightly lighter note but relatable one that anybody that complains about the smell of cannabis is just reciting some psychosomatic fucking nonsense do you know what i mean that, that, that it's something that they think they don't like because they've been told they don't fucking like it do you know that kind of way how can you not like it it's the one of the best fucking smells ever what the fuck it is. No, I mean, I heard someone talk about that on the radio the other day. I mean, the point I would add to that is if I was sitting in an office in London and a load of weed came through the, the window, all I could then think about for the rest of the day was smoking weed. But there's this does smell lovely. It smells beautiful. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Another small little point there as well is like, um, <clears throat> that, that sort of surface level dismissal that you get even from say single use uh, not single use but one time only cannabis users that have made up their mind and go fuck me that's fucked up that's all crazy nah I'll stick to my beers the 16 that you've had before you've had the fucking joint to puff up exactly joint. yeah mushrooms but, the same yeah but, the same. I mean but like I mean if that's if that's sort of the le- the the depth that's protruding through society do you know what I mean? We're we've got a lot more work to fucking do. Which, um, I had another bit well, to that point there, but I lost it. <laughs> yeah. Education. If it's drilled into you the first time you're going to try weed, make sure you haven't drunk five pints beforehand. Then you'd have a very different experience with it. This is know? true. Again, again we're, we're back to we're back to our practices and oh, yeah. our view of cannabis. Of to you know, are we just consuming like are we just consuming it like we consume like we consume beer? Like when you have too much beer, your, your your head spins. When you have like that certain amount of cannabis, like you start to see yourself. You start like the the the, the paranoia, right? If if there's one thing that I that I realized, and it's since I had my psychedelic assisted therapy, and you know, um, integration circles like since then. When I've looked back on my greatest paranoias, my greatest noises, like. I feel like that was that was a bad trip, right? That's a bad trip on like, and then when you're you know tripping on psychedelics and you have a bad trip, that's your psyche telling you something, or you facing one part of your psyche that is either a, something a trauma, an insecurity, or or whatever, and how you deal with it in that moment, whether you fight against what is essentially yourself in either. A violent way or you treat it with compassion mm. which is the way you should do but that in in that moment you face yourself and looking back on my paranoias from when i was younger smoking cannabis and even the paranoias that i have now and the anxieties they're all related to how i see myself and they're all related to my anxieties and they're all related to things that i need to work on myself 100 like are people talking about me why are people talking about me? Why should I care about that? What, you know, what is it? Where does that come from? And again, it's like, you know, beer doesn't let you address yourself. Cannabis, I think on some level can. Um, yeah. Well, it's, uh, cannabis is almost a mirror. So it's, it's kind of good. It's good to hold yourself to an account, but that's what beer does is the complete opposite. It lets you completely ignore how you behave. Well, yeah. I mean, as, in terms of the structure of it, alcohol is classed as a neurological retardant because it slows yeah. down connection between neurons. Cannabis actually causes, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, new neurological pathways to develop in the brain. I can't remember what the term is 
called for it. Um, but ba basically, it increases the the functionality of the brain. To some people, mm -hmm. as you've alluded to there, yeah, that can be very difficult for them. Their first experience, if they've gone through their life mm -hmm. only ever listening to their, is it where their base ego? So as Freud spoke of the ego, the superego, and the id. So the, the most states of consciousness, as the Buddha speaks to, or even Christ, Jesus spoke of, about yes, wit witnessing yourself, being witness to yourself, and, and talking to yourself. That's not well, crazy. Yeah. Some people have never done that, and then they then have a small puff of weed at a festival or whatever somewhere after, maybe even not a few beers, just on an empty stomach after a long, exhausting day in the sun, and they have an experience where they hear their own voice, and instead of them going oh and, and listening, they get scared by it, and the harder you then push against it. The, the, the worse it becomes. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's, it is your it, it also goes back to them, but doesn't it, to whether the government actually wants society to be full of kind of thoughtful, self-reflecting people, Indeed. or if they want you to, if they want you to go and have five beers and then just, you know, not, not question there's everything. A, I mean, there's, it, there's a reason there's a sale for alcohol every bank holiday. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, they don't want you to a fucking whiskey for fifteen fucking quid. And there you go. Start. You've got three days. You've got an extra day to recover. Don't think about your fucking job. <laughs> There's something there with the, again, like with the booze, with the, the alcohol, with being able to take a trip. And there's this, there's this element of mentorship that I don't think like people have, that we take for granted. Like the first person who gave you your first joint, who the first person who said, who told you about like, you know, whiteing out, like how to get, how to get yourself back on, on your feet. Like for me, like, how to uh, roll with a bad trip, for example, like literally lie on your back and breathe and feel your, your, your breath inside of you, all that kind of hippie stuff to yeah. you know, help you reconnect. But I wouldn't have known any of those things if in some of my times of crisis, uh, times of psychedelic emergencies or cannabis emergencies or whatever, there wasn't somebody there to help me, somebody educated somebody that I could trust as opposed to a bunch of my mates pissing themselves on the other side of the, you know, party or whatever we're at. Well, I'm like, you know, yeah, 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 Gav. It happens a lot, doesn't it, mate? It happens a lot. <laughs> but honestly, but yeah, that's the thing. Like mm. we, like when we, especially when we do, you know, drugs as kids, like mm. we're all, you know, I would actually be, I mean, when I, I don't know, the, the difference with that is when you know a bunch of kids do MD and you just see them all cuddling each other in a, you know, in some cuddle puddle in Boomtown or something like that. You know, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah. Like, and then yeah. you see, like, you know, a few doors down, like somebody spooned out their head, like, absolutely, you know, like, like yeah. dribbling on a, you know, dribbling in a corner or in the middle of a castle or something. But, you know, there's a time, there's a time and a place, like, and, one of the things I feel that especially our young kids are missing are actual, you know, actual, you know, people to respect and to invest like some, some thought into. And instead we've got like, you know, cut price, you know, right wing alt, you know, alt right grifters, like, you know, bloody Ben Shapiro or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, you know, you know why that is though, Ash, they're all in fucking prison. 
They're all, they're all, they're literally though, where, where are the social leaders? Where are the community healers? Where are the actual people that try to do something and step beyond that legal bound to step up for their community? Yeah. They were arrested and destroyed. So what happens? You you then vilify that entire family. So then they become opposed to the very people that are there to protect that community. And then that just becomes this ever expanding arms race as Neil would speak of. So that now you end up with the people that I live with in Durham, one of the worst estates in Durham, which is still, I think, ranked the third most impoverished region in Northern Europe. Did the, the, the police are their enemy, the absolute fucking enemy. I have been in meetings with the cops where they've rolled out a map and map in this area and gone, we get info forever except these two dead hotspots, which is the main bull rings around here. Some of these guys are third and fourth generation unemployed. All they've got is dealing. That is their only opportunity. You know what I mean? The culture and the community that they've grown up in that was created as a consequence of prohibition has, has dampened them, yet there's still some wonderful, creative, beautiful fucking people. They may look rough, speak rough, and have not until them in terms of finance, finances or whatever, but they shouldn't discount them. You know what I mean? It's, 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 as Gav said before, it's the government, or rather the powers that be, that put various people into, into position as for, uh, political power. They don't want a well-informed, compassionate community. They don't want people that are going to recognize the pain of others because then that's an anathema to capitalism. Because capitalism is designed on you will get ahead if you step on the rest. Do you know what I mean? And, and the more that yeah. people take MDMA and they then go, I mean, because I've seen it. I have grown up with kids that were racist, fascist, horrible fuckers. Go, start going to the rave scene and start taking MDMA. And then they're cuddling on the biggest black guy that you've ever seen in the world, going from times where they'd go fight him just because of the color of his skin. And now mm-hmm. they felt this, this reversal of things have gone and had this, gone over and de- de- burdened themselves as it were and tried to make up for, for years of feeling this certain way because they've grown up in isolation. The rave communities that, that grew up before me and the generation ahead of me and that we grew up in the shadow of really did, did far more to, to, for community cohesion than any policing around drugs could ever do, than any of these community initiatives or projects run by health workers or whatever else. Until we have an acceptance that we have the right to, to act and do what we want as long as we're not harming each other and the right to build our communities as we see fit, then we're gonna keep having these same fucking problems and each generation is gonna get worse because they'll, they'll keep losing, losing their leaders, losing their, their their idols, do you know? Like on that, I mean, on that point of like, I mean, you, you mentioned something there that I felt was, uh, you know, like kind of blind, I think something along the lines of blind consumption uh, of cannabis, such of, of, of drugs in general. And I just wondered like whether you felt that that was, because it's something that I kind of feel when I look at like some of the, like the cannabis trade shows that we go to, that there's, there's this, I mean, because that's the thing. We're going to a trade show. It's there for the, you know, it's there for the trade. It's there for the money. But it, especially, I mean, when I, you know, compare it to, say, a tech trade show or I compare it to, you know, video games trade show or, you know, E3 or something like that, it's it's really, like, kind of geared towards, like, you know, just consume as much weed as possible. A lot of the, yeah. the media that's being, the popular popular media on YouTube, like you've got, oh, dude, like smokes a 10 gram dab or something like that. There is no. And it, yeah, you know what I mean? So there's, 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 part of, there's, there's part of that that I feel that is already being co-opted, like in America, like in terms of our, of how people want to, you know, smoke weed and whatnot and, like the, the idea of, you yeah. know, 
smoking a massive fucking you know weed cigar and kind of thing that's a sign of respect like I don't it's, know. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of affluence in in a country though where it's legal and you've got branding and advertising. Yeah. Of course, these. Oh, come on! As an influencer, I mean, when I was really doing my lives every week, I wasn't paying mm-hmm. for shit. Do you know what I mean? I really mm-hmm. wasn't paying for goddamn it, and I, I did not have the biggest of reach in America, where these people have channels over a million plus. Think think about it. As we spoke of earlier, on capitalism under the neoliberalistic model means you need quarterly growth. In an industry like cannabis, there's going to be a finite point. So when you reach every consumer that you can, you then need to incentivize that consumer to consume as much as possible. Also, the U.S. is leading the way in, in terms of cannabis, and the U.S. has always been about the worship of money anyway. So in whatever industry it's about, it's going to be glamorizing. As you know, it's going to be glamorizing it. Yeah, but I think ultimately it will settle. I think there will unfortunately be consequences and problems. But if we can set up a social equity model where we take, say, a quarter of the profits that are made from this that go into uh, paying reparations for people that were imprisoned or people whose lives were, were ruined into rebuilding the very communities um, that were worst hit by, by prohibition, you then take another chalk of it and you invest that into education, into research, into an open, as Maka keeps talking about, an open source tech technology base where all of the data is inputted so everybody has free access to all of it. So there is no hiding of research by various pharmaceutical companies until they get their patent so, so, and they can corner the market on various cannabinoid research. And, and again, there's still then more than enough for everyone to live off. I mean, the industry at the minute is still trying to inflate the price of weed. If we really want to get this fucking right, we need to crash it. Do you know what I mean? The the price of a smoking it should it should, it should yeah. be so cheap. It shouldn't be about pricing yeah. us uh, pricing us out of consuming it. It should be creating a social etiquette the same way we do with pubs. Yeah. So if you're down the pub, most pub publicans and most regulars, if they then see somebody that's having too much, publican will clock them, like uh, cut them off. You know, mates should be like, "You're all right, dude. How are you doing?" And there's yeah. that so they're looking after them in a social capacity. Whereas in an illegal market of people taking drugs, there isn't that mechanism. So I think that the more we have of these things and the more we have these social spaces of clubs or coffee shops or whatever, people can socially titrate their own. And there's a way then we can recognize problematic consumption. And then through a voluntary system, people can then still have access to not uh, uh, abstinence-based recovery, you know, not forced sobriety, because that I do not believe in any capacity that that is the fucking answer. You have to figure out, as we've alluded to on this uh, podcast earlier, why, why the trauma, as Gable Marty asks, not why, why the trauma, not the addiction. And until we re- reframe that debate, yeah. we can have that kind of discussion, then the multinational investment firms that are pushing legalization in this country, because they are the same people that shouted at us and said, you will never get grow your own and you will never get a recreational market in the UK. And now the ones leading the way for the recreational charge coming into 2021. So it's it's an interesting position. I, I have said quite a lot that I'm probably going to be in the unfortunate position of fighting against legalization in the coming year or so because it's going to be mm-hmm. unbelievably corporatized and it will actually create in yeah. Canada more laws for them to come after us, more nuance within the legislation for them to attack us, more impediments to us getting licenses or access to play. Sure, yeah. but if you're, okay, so if cannabis is legalized, but it's also highly regulated and so on and so forth, how are they going to be able to justify actually busting you for, for growing five plants in your cupboard? If they've actually held their hands up and said yes, these are all the benefits. So there is, you know, there is the that. Same way that but we need precedent. You get busted for making vodka in your house. Like you're not allowed to distill spirits. Like you can buy, you can buy vodka, but you can't make it at home without a license. Well, you, know, no, you can make you can make gin in your in your in your garage. Surely you can, can't you? Yeah, I better go and smash up my distillery. 
Oh, not yeah, a sale. I think it can be like, you know, up to, what's it, 20% or something like that. But these highly distilled spirits, we've got all of these these products like, uh, uh, you know, there's, there, is, there, there are tons of products. You can't, you know, you can't grow Cody. You can buy Cody and you can't grow it at home because it's bloody opium, isn't it? Like, there's so, there, there, are, there are so many, there's like, was it um, Transform have got their like five different models of mm-hmm. uh, um, of legalization um, of rather kind of market uh, regulation, as it were. They all look really cool. Like some of them are like, you know, you've got your pharmacy led, you've got your shop led, you've got your full legalization. And again, that full legal that full legalization, I think, is opening a Pandora's box of, you know, literally you're going to have. A co- the Coca-Cola, you've already got Nestle in Canada. Did you see my post the other the other week? Nestle yeah, is in cannabis. Nestle sick, is in cannabis. It's yeah, done. Well, it's done. Yeah. It's yeah. over. <laughs> cannabis is once Nestle is in cannabis, Fuck. cannabis is over. No, but this, making- but, but but this is wonderful. So all of the people at the corporate trade show, everybody on every level that isn't going to be one of the already existing drinks manufacturers, food manufacturers, or major international agriculturists, you are going to get locked the fuck out. So you may make your money now and get whatever, but when it, when this comes, whatever form of global legalization takes place, there will still be a fucking movement of people going, you're wrong. We need entirely this to be fully, truly, ubiquitously decriminalized. Yeah. So that means no prison for cultivating a one too many plant. Or in Canada, yeah. for example, growing using the wrong seeds, which is then illegal. You know what I mean? It's this, There are so many different ways that they can tie us up that we will always be upholding to them. And again, as we used, first opened this podcast with, we're speaking of, of, of uh, the black people in America that had, that had got their, their liberty, mm-hmm. that then had this opportunity to set themselves free, were tied up in economic legislation and everything else that came along with it to then prevent them from doing so. And I fear that they are literally giving us as a way of pacifying us his legal cannabis and we then smoke as you said as much as we like get all the dabs in the world we're all taking a thousand milligram yeah. edible every day and nobody's thinking about the consequences or truly fighting yeah. for this they've managed to, have to weaponize yeah, what yeah. we want against us you only have to look at monsanto to see how dangerous it is when nature is essentially owned and, and controlled you know and again monsanto and getting hold of cannabis yeah, that comes back to the I think the problem with having the cannabis movement as a purely is based on a purely consumptive um, act like the, the entire thing about making it like like something that is both uh, belonging to social justice that's belonging to law reform that's belonging to the uh, um, the upliftment of material conditions of the working class these are these are actual things rather than you know oh yeah we should all be able to have a smoke in peace yeah. yes you should be able to have a smoke in peace but it's much more politically compelling to yeah. tell somebody that you can completely redevelop northumberland by growing like cannabis uh on a you know on a three square mile patch or you know something yeah. like that. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm being hyper hyperbolic there but yeah. on the Nestle thing, guys, like in case like your your listeners don't know, like there's uh, essentially the brand is uh, is Geocan and it's ultra oh, bloody hell, where's it gone now? I took a picture of it and it's on the THTC um, uh, Instagram page, but mm-hmm. it is called Ultra Alteri. Bollocks! <laughs> look it up, look it up. But essentially, what they've done is they've um, they've combined like uh, CBD with fish oil there, 
and they've and what is the their ip that they've got around this is the capsule lining it's called something called very uh vesisorb which basically mm -hmm. means that it gets into your gut um a lot quicker and uh, you've got a lot more cannabis that's bioavailable or you know whatever nonsense that they're saying yes yeah, the Min minami stuff right minami yeah, the, they, but basically, yeah, they, it, it's, it comes in really um, uh, uh, insidiously because my girlfriend came back from, uh, from working in the market and apparently, like, you had all these, like, influencer types and market reps going around the market, uh, basically giving out these samples uh, to people, to restaurant owners and things, so they could, like, just sell this stuff, which is, you know, classed as a nutritional supplement, mm -hmm. again, like something that again is so like it, it's this whole cbd novel food regulation is just an absolute like head fuck but that shows what but, happens when research yeah. doesn't lead and greed does yeah but here we go like nestle nestle's making cannabis guys like I mean, this you know you know this is this is what i'm saying like if you're going if you're going full legalization you're gonna have, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have Coca-Cola make you're gonna have Coca-Cola making cannabis drinks. You're gonna have Nestle making, you know, nutritional supplements. You're gonna have all of that, and and then people will say, oh, just don't buy it then. Well, yeah, you'll also, also, also have Primark. you also have Primark making hemp viscos as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like this what? is the this is the problem. It needs to come. We can't just say we're gonna legalize cannabis. We have to. It has to be paired with social justice. It has to yeah. be paired with all of these other important. Um, in, in, uh, entirely, but they're also national repair. That could be our slogan: mm. national yeah. repair and self-sufficiency. Is there an? Oh, yeah. That's great. There? That's beautiful. Yeah. That's, well, this, see, that, that's tangible and that's beautiful. Well, I mean, and in, something like that. If we, if you, if we did something like that and we created a nationalized industry, because look, I mean, we talked about Portugal earlier. Um, so there is a slight conspiracy theory on the internet that is slight that is somewhat backed up. Um, that suggests that it was executives um, from the parent company, the investment firm Venture Group, who are the owners of Tilman. Oh, yeah, yeah, those guys. Whatever else, yeah. So the, um, they were behind Portugal's decision to not push for the vote to fully legalize cannabis. Within a few weeks, there was an announcement that um, a 28 million euro million, 28 million euro facility was to be opened in Portugal for Tilray to service uh, European facilities. So the issue we've got is that these organizations, these companies are that large now that they can sway influence around other governments. So we have to push this nationalized thing. We have to push this. Mm -hmm. So I think the way, and it's something we've spoke of quite a lot on this podcast is that we first need to reform and standardize the language because what one person hears when they hear decriminalize and one person hears legalize, the different things. So in the loose term that I used, I mean, legalizes in the no punitive measures you can face for what you did with cannabis unless say you compact it into a brick and beat somebody to death with it then that's an act of violence you assaulted them with cannabis it's not the cannabis that's the charge you know what i mean mm. so mm. whereas some people hear that and they hear obviously corporate and they hear marketed and like we say quarterly growth and scan like dan bulzarian's marketing and all that shit you know they see that kind of end product which in some parts of the world, yeah, they're not even attempting to regulate it because the money is that fucking big. They all cashed in at the right goddamn time. They've got their stock in these companies. 
they're happy. They're all they're happy. Whereas we have an opportunity in this country to have a true grassroots movement that represents the hemp and CBD industry, that represents the medical cannabis industry, that represents so-called recreational or adult consumption, and the actual general fucking public that would benefit from this. The forty thousand extra deaths, I think it's in London alone from pollution, that could be helped benefit by using the best natural carbon sequestering technology on the planet. Do you know what I mean? You were talking about wealth inequality. There's what, 14 and a half million people in poverty in this country. We could put them back to work because at this point, we're still going to need many hands make it look like work. There's, we could literally have a true green new deal where we rebuild a renewable world using cannabis as the base resource for this. We could become a world leader in the research of technology. There's cannabis graphene for fuck's sake, which is that's in quantum computing and, and um, supercapacitor batteries that are, are more uh, effective than lithium cell. You know, yeah. I mean, once, once we start talking about that sort of stuff, we're still talking about oh, the smell of it and it gets you a bit high and a bit. We're still yeah, stuck yeah. down here yeah, when yeah, Star yeah. Trek exactly. fucking future is over there. And we have the opportunity as a country to lead that, to truly do it. If we've decided to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world and we can go it alone, this is the resource that gives us it. But it has to be a free and open industry that's not being bought from companies buying into this country, but from the people building it and generating our own profit and developing our own trade relations with the world around our, our technologies. Because as, we, as I said earlier, China are fucking doing it. They are moving far ahead of this. And if we don't catch up, this is all going to be private from America and China. They will close in the world until corporate cannabis enslaves us all. Mm, mm. Good speech. Thank you. <laughs> I am um, good at that, you know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so I should try and do it for a living one time. Um, <laughs> trying, trying. Um, I want to get two more questions for you guys, because I'm aware I've kept you slightly longer than I did say I would have you. Um, as we've just been talking about legalization, would you ever consider becoming the, the cannabis um, the cannabis trade company, TC, 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 uh, after 21 years of trying to get THTC to, uh, to, to, into people's heads and mindsets, I think it might be a little, uh, trying to rebrand the, the name now, uh, probably not, but also, you know, we, we need to remember if, if hemp and cannabis are synonymous with one another, people need to remember and learn the history of it. So no, I mean, we're the hemp trading company and to be honest, when, we first started every other hemp company that I looked at was linking hemp and cannabis as in, as in the smoking side of cannabis mm -hmm. together, which is something that I tried to separate purely because trying to be taken seriously 20 years ago, you know, in the press straight away, they're going to tie you with a brush of you must be a bunch of stoners. So yeah. it, it was intentional to try and disassociate the two, all, you know, all, all being that we did it through, drum and bass and hip hop nights, but you know, they will always try and tie whatever you do in the hemp scene in with, you must be getting stoned. And so, you know, it was an intentional, um, it was intentional to try and disassociate the two. Um, you know, especially bearing in mind that hemp and cannabis, I and mean, the other question you'd asked earlier, which I thought was very interesting, as was you asked about the difference between cannabis and hemp. Most people would, would still use the word marijuana and, and you know, it's, it's a racist word and that, and I'm really glad that the connotations of that are slowly disappearing because, you know, it was only Ernest, Ernest Small who made the, who made the, uh, came up with a totally arbitrary number, um, back in what, 1979 when he wrote the species problem in cannabis. And it was just purely then that he came up with 0.3% of THC being present in hemp, which turned it into marijuana or cannabis. You know, it's a completely arbitrary number, but you know, they are obviously the same family, they're the same plants, but you know, pe people, people still tie them all together. 
you know mm. it's just a natural the press does anyway it's just a, a, a natural thing for them to do so i think they are two different things and they should be treated as such as well yeah it was the only reason i sort of ask is um i've been sort of on a, on a personal uh grudge against the the difference or the the arbitrary difference between them obviously there are difference in the entomology in terms of the root of the words um mm -hmm. not going to get into now because that's far too long it will go into but um and then there's obviously well, the difference in terms of the colloquialistic way we use them the way we use them in our common vocabulary and i think um more needs as we said about the standardization of language to be a discernible difference because they're too easily interchanged when the the what i put forward was the idea if we kind of use hemp as an archaic term that still carries forward but we say industrial cannabis or mm. the industrial properties of cannabis because obviously the plant species itself mm -hmm. isn't hemp the, the, in the latin name is is cannabis so if we're then trying to standardize the education i mean even in say america uh, sorry canada they call cannabinoids CB, cbds so when you're reading cross literature of the Americans and the Canadians, it can get very fucking confusing. Uh, there's other uh, instances of this where there's not that standard terminology. So it's very hard to take it in from all of these regions and put it into a, a standardized thing that the average uh, layman can read. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, the, the problem, the, there should be something around that. And I, I, the only reason I rebel against it is I feel it's slightly disingenuous for the hemp lobby, for lack of a better wording, mm -hmm. to, to kind of go, we're not cannabis. We only have a tiny amount of that devil THC in it. Leave us alone. And it's like, well, actually, if we had a thriving THC-rich crop, the fibers in cannabis is in higher than 0.3 THC are denser. Do you know what I mean? There are certain mm. cultivars, and God, when we can actually be allowed to interbreed these things like hell, we'll be able to create some 17-foot-tall monsters that give flowers like cars. It's mm. a shit analogy, but do you know what I'm saying? Is once, yeah. once, once we truly lift that cap and actually allow mm. the education to be spread between all sides, we can learn from this. Rather than a pharmaceutical company patenting how they can add 50% to their yield of their crop for their own profit, and the hemp farmer struggling to get it for the resource that we need to sequester that carbon, to re-nutrify that soil, to produce the building materials to build the new homes, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is the difference between incrementalism and making actual radical change. And, uh, and the, I think the problem, the problem that I know that you're talking about is essentially when you have like, uh, you know, like uh, a group of businesses that all have like, they've all got their own financial interests, but they uh, essentially have them in a, in such a certain way that if you start to try and uh, punch above your weight, you're going to uh, jeopardize very little that you've got there. And hemp, pretty, hemp sellers in this country, as far as I know, well, from our experience, from our shared experience, live in a very precarious state. They live in a definite, in such a precarious state. When you are uh, pulling like support or trying to get some kind of, you know, unionization from uh, or kind of collective kind of effort from those people, like they're always going to be limited by any kind, anything they say see as a threat to their current kind of income and their current living standards. And that, and that, you can't blame them for that because you know these are people that have got their entire their houses, their mortgages rely on these businesses. So, like again, like this is why I'm saying that maybe we need to start to decouple this argument from purely like product based and like start focusing on these social issues. Uh, and coupling them more and, you know, coupling them a lot tighter with the, you know, with the cannabis uh, thing. Because even there, yeah. I think with, you know, with, with hemp textiles, we can, uh, there's, 
yeah, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm getting texts from Evie. Evie's just like going, I'm already, I'm hungry, I need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm babbling anyway now. She can look after herself, can't she? Does she need you to cook for her? <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat without my girlfriend. You guys eat without your girlfriend. Yeah, absolutely not. If we, can, if we can wrap wrap up and just hit the last question lesson because I'm gonna have yeah, to yeah. I need to break yeah, this. We, the, yeah, this this has been a pleasure and honestly I'm grateful for you both for giving me the time. Uh, we'll obviously have you on again uh, in as a near future. Um, but yeah, the last question I wanted to ask you really was what does the the near future, the distant future? I suppose we'll talk about near future because nobody has a clue what's near going future, on. Near future, thanks to COVID. Yeah, optimistic. Uh, with with the what's what's the future of THDC? Well, the future. The last year has obviously just been a complete write-off. So uh, when Ash, Ash went to get a better job uh, last year, um, uh, <laughs> last year, uh, I, I made the decision to try to take a sabbatical this year, and we shut the shut the warehouse, shut the office, and I stopped buying stock um, because after 20 years, I really, really needed needed a break um, and needed to reassess. So I was going to just go into private label B2B hemp products, and then go on tour with UB40 last year, which was, was the plan. But then obviously life and fun and business were all cancelled. Um, so since then, I've basically, I started doing some masks. So I did some masks oh, no, working yeah. the ref, refugee community kitchen for those purely, not because uh, I wanted to profit off of COVID, but because of walking down the street and seeing all the disposable throwaway crap and everything appearing mm -hmm. in the, the ocean and everything else. So we got into that. Um, in towards the end of last year, I started working with a company called T-Mill who do all of our prints now on print to order, organic cotton, t-shirts, hoodies, everything else, whilst tr trying to keep private label going on. So I've actually produced some hemp t-shirt ranges for four or five other hemp brands, which are just uh, hemp and CBD brands, which are popping up. One's called Sundial Hemp, another one's called Trippy Panther. Um, uh, oh God, the others will come to me. Um, the hemp, uh, the hemp shop, Brighton, a couple of others. Um, but really getting into doing more private label uh, stuff for all the, not just hemp and cannabis brands, but any brands that want to do more sustainable eco merch. So as from this year, I'm going into business with uh, Seedsman, who are a British company, but a Spanish seeds bank. And they're going to be providing me with staff, warehouse, uh, some finance and some funding in order to do that but i really really want to focus on more hemp basics so hemp caps t-shirts socks beanies anything like that for other brands to be able to put their logo on i mean nothing breaks my heart more than going to a hemp cannabis trade show and wandering around and seeing all the all of the seed banks selling you know gilded t-shirts with their print on them yeah. so every, every, more, more accessible to to everyone to be able to buy 10, 20, 50, 100 hemp t-shirts and put their brand name on it. Yeah. So hemp basics, really. Excellent. Uh, that's very much. And we're also doing heavier weights. We've got some lovely hemp towels as well. Ooh. They look cool, man. Yeah, really, really nice fabric. There's certain things that hemp lends itself really, really well to, and they are things like socks, towels, things that you want to last forever, mm. you know? Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, I've banged on for a long time about these hemp socks, but these, the socks is where it's at. So I have a big, big range of hemp socks coming out it, very soon. Unfortunately, Excellent. this is all going to be, they're all going to be finished and sent before Chinese new year, but I got a message yesterday saying China's just gone back into lockdown. 
So uh-huh. everything is paused again. All of the all of the business is all on pause. So hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. But for now, who knows? That's uh, quite like the musical connection as well. Um, definitely want to see a lot more sort of UK and uh, based artists as well. I've seen you've got red red meth and stuff like that, and that that's fucking cool. That is really fucking cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, really, uh, we've got a few US and big international names, but we've really always focused for you know two decades on really trying to help uh, promote the the UK scene, you know, and the mm. more local scene, and I love particularly that. particularly beatbox. I mean, we're founding members of the uh, or for initial sponsors of the beat, UK beatbox champs fifteen years ago, and now beatbox has become a massive international. Uh, phenomenon so yeah trying to support local artists is, is kind of one of the things that we got into i mean one of the things that like gav will never say himself is that the majority of our partnerships are a result of like people just being friends with mm. him mm-hmm. and being like just because gav is a good person like yeah. people come and they work with like gav because he's a dude and they work with you know me because they like me mostly (laughs) (laughs) they like that's the thing people like you know just little things like this you know a business isn't like just some amorphous it shouldn't really be like you know some amorphous kind of brand that kind of sits like some kind of ivory tower in the distance you know shining away it's like you know it's hard work it's one guy who's you know who single-handedly run a company for a few years then joined by, you know, a small brown man who, you know, r- rode the shirt tails of glory for a good couple of years. Um, I did leave that, like, I, I left THDC last year to uh, go and work at a, a digital uh, creative agency because my, because sadly my personal money situation and also wanting to buy a house this side of being 40 years old, you know, you do, there's some things you got to do, but mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing. I still, I give a fair bit of my time to, um, to running THTC on socials. One of the things that when we said that when Gav like gave me the announcement to post up and when we started making the content for it saying, Hey guys, we're probably, this is probably going to be our last sale. And then we're just going to run down the stock. Like the outpouring, the absolute outpouring of affection and love, like from people like, you know, I, you guys, if if anyone's been on the THTC Facebook page, they'll they'll notice, you know, an often kind of argumentative tone with racists and uh, uh, climate change denialists and conspiracy theorists and whatnot. But the the beauty of some of the comments and commenters on our page, we'll run into them at festivals. They'll come up to us and they'll cuddle us and they'll you know give us presents. And it's incredibly humbling. Like, it's incredibly, incredibly humbling, especially to see, like, something, like, especially, you know, like, coming up and just seeing somebody who's wearing a THTC T-shirt that, like, says, oh, yeah, I know Gav. I remember Gav from all the way back. I met him, like, once at a festival, like, once at here or something like that. Or they just know us and they know our tone and they know who we are and and they like us and, one of the things that it's like, you know, this little, where is it? Here we go. Our little logo, like 90% of the t- 99% of the time, when you see this, like, t-shirt, this logo on another person, like, they're going to be a good person to talk to. They're always going to have something decent to say. And you've always got a friend in that person. Like, and that's, and that is testament to Gav building that. 
Like it's a mate. It, it oh, it's a thank you, man. Brand, yeah, it's well, a brand, mean, what, brand thank you, mate. man. I do appreciate that. What I mean, one thing I, I would say, which I which I really really don't take for granted, is that environmentalism, particularly, you're trying to run your own environmental business, trying to run your business full stop, but trying to run an, an environmental business, to encourage people to save the world. Environmentalism is still a middle class issue, and I say that because people that are struggling to put food on the table every day or clothes on their kids' backs don't have, you know, they don't have the luxury to be able to say, oh, why don't you go and buy something free range? Why don't you buy something that's going to last longer but is more expensive? Most people are just struggling to get by. So, you know, I, I, I do, I do very much appreciate that. I'm, I'm able, to, I've been able to do this for many years because. Um, I'm very lucky to have to not have the outgoings and to to have very very supportive mother who's let me live at her house for many many years. Or or we've got a community. It's not so. It's not it just is, that we've got is. a community that supported us. No, like, no, sure. No, we absolutely do. But I mean, you know, we are really hopefully the antithesis of the Amazon. And I think you know Amazon and, and brands like that, where people are sick and tired of these huge companies really not giving a shit about their workers or about the planet and and really want to support a brand like like us you know it's it's there's the future is going to be run sadly by the by the amazons of this world but there's i think there's going to be a big bounce back for people wanting to do something independent something creative you know and and to treat their workers properly so there's a tipping point but i think it's gonna you know people are appreciating small independent brands a lot more now Agreed, and I think COVID's done um, done that no end. Although it's just directly affected the high street, I think it's going to change the way people spend their money because it's not about convenience. If they've got nowhere to be and they can spend the extra day waiting for a delivery from a, another company who can't match Amazon's same-day delivery, they'll, they'll do mm -hmm. it. And, and there are actual communities and people sharing sort of memes of going, well, actually, if you go to Amazon, find your product, type it into Google or whatever, find it from the supplier and you can usually in some cases get it cheaper. Yeah, you'll wait longer or whatever, but you're actually then, you're putting food on somebody else's table. You're putting clothes mm -hmm. on somebody else's kid's back. And mm -hmm. if we can re, 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 reveal to the people those intimate links between all of these things, why would you not do that? Well, yeah. you know what I mean? Who in their right mind, if they were informed and could see that chain of events, would not rather pay a little bit extra and wait a bit longer to, to then actually keep their community alive rather than push other people into destitution and poverty. Well, on the same on the same point, you've noticed probably how Extinction Rebellion is basically not in the news anymore. It's not in the news because of COVID. There's something's replaced it, but the planet is is still dying and still collapsing. And the more people are poor, the less they get to think about things like that. You know, yeah. so it, it is a very interesting and quite scary time that we that, that we find ourselves in at the moment. But you know, hopefully this is going to be COVID and everything else that's going on is going to be a uniting force as opposed to a dividing force. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Well, that's Fair play to you as well, Simba, for doing what you, you're doing. Mm, and, yeah. And I just want to, as Ash has just given me so much bromance, I want to give him some bromance back. Uh, four, five, five years ago, I was close to packing it in. Every year I've been close to packing it in, but it is my life. And without Ash coming along and, and, and helping me, I probably, after the where the, the screen printer burnt down five years ago, I probably would have jacked it all in. So I uh, got a proper job. So yeah, much love to Ash as well. The problem with these t-shirts is that when you say nice things about me, you can really see when my nipples <laughs> 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 so they're, really they're really thin. They're really thin. I need to do something about that. 
just just right. there, just there, Gav. Uh, well, that that is an absolutely wonderful way Perfect. to end this podcast. Thank you both, honestly, for being a guest, and and thank you for your kind words. Honestly, this is my new passion in life is to try and create a platform beyond bias where we can discuss ideas and concepts and really find some commonality rather than just further div division. So Great, once again, yeah, thank you both for coming. As I said, we'll have you again as guests. Uh, we'll link to the shop and everything below so that people can keep up to date with what you guys are doing and your rather controversial Facebook feed. Um, so yeah, once again, just thank you very much for joining. Uh, guys, if you enjoyed this uh, video or if you're listening to this on one of the many podcast platforms, please do check us out on patreon.com forward slash the simple life where you can help support and sponsor us for less than a cup of tea a week. Um, yeah, thank you very much, guys. Check us out on all platforms at The Simple Life. I have been Simba, he's been Maga, and these two wonderful folks have been Gavin Ash from THTC. Go check them out. Thanks, Bye. guys.